Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Uh, I think we just had a little bit missed. Zach didn't realize yeah, we this morning. It's my fault. I blew, I, I blew up you guys this morning. <laughs> hey, Zach, I got a background now, man. Check it out. Yeah, that's that's funny. I just ordered one of those. It's supposed to get get here tomorrow because well, I just I just went to a little fabric shop and just got a piece of green cloth and, and just stuck it up nice. on, a, on a board. So you can we're we're Elliot, we're just just we're we're talking about upgrading our our visual on this thing just so you don't know. But um, okay. Anyway, uh, Zach, you want to get let's get let's just get started. We're going to start recording and I'll just kind of start. We'll just start chatting. Just kind of informal. Um, Sounds good. So, I mean, just, just, I don't know, Zach, did you see, I mean, yesterday I was blocked from tr- Twitter. Did you see what happened? Yeah. Yeah. You're, uh, after, th- after three years of prominent display, you're, you're lion feasting. Yeah, I had a lion, I had a picture of a lion eating like a piece of meat and it, you, you couldn't even hardly tell it was from an animal. I mean, there's like a little edge of a horn in there and somebody reported me for it as it being too graphic of content. And it's going to be offensive to people. So Twitter sent me a notice that I was blocked until I removed my my lion image, and uh, so I replaced. <laughs> I, you know, I, I replaced it with some like some stupid roses, and then somebody sent me a, of a lion just flipping somebody off. And so, yeah, <laughs> but I, you know, I, you know, Joe Rogan said, "Hey, man, that's stupid as can be," and uh, and uh, said he's going to have this guy Jack from Twitter on today. He's going to talk about that. So we'll see. If it, if you know, if they get into that that discussion, because it's kind of a freedom of speech thing, but um, that's so that's besides the point. But the reason we had you on, I saw a, or I didn't watch the whole thing, but I and, and you know, because I'm aware of this stuff, but I saw a video that you did with Bart K, and we'll probably get Bart on the show at some point talking. He said it was the best oxalate talk you'll ever hear, and you know, <laughs> and and so I think it's something that is a topic that I've talked about a little bit over time. I've seen, you know, Sally Norton has a good presentation. In fact, she's going to be coming on the show to talk about this as well, but I wanted to get your take on a number of things about oxalate. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself, just, just, just a minute or two so people know who you are and, and then we can start talking about oxalates or, or whatever the hell. We'll talk about the weather or craziness or something else that comes up. Sound good? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, and you're in the UK, I'm assuming. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I'm in the UK. Are you in London? I'm, no, no. I'm up towards the north of the UK, a place called Birmingham. Birmingham. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I've been there. I, I just stopped in the airport there when I flew up to Scotland one time. I flew back from Scotland. I can't remember something, but they've got a, uh, there's a lot of factories in Birmingham or something like that. Is that what I'm understanding? Maybe not. Yeah, it's fairly industrial. Yeah, um, okay. I don't live in Birmingham, but that's probably the closest place that you might recognize. Okay. Um, it's fairly gray. 
not not the nicest of places i think you're not going to get a suntan hanging out in birmingham all right so tell like i said where where what do you what do you do tell us a little bit about yourself elliot yeah okay um so i i have a like a practice i am a nutritionist so i consult with people on um uh, ways that they can improve their health um in a kind of non non-medical way basically on what foods that they can eat and things um and i developed a particular interest in the damaging effects that plants can have on the human body this was mostly because i um i was actually vegetarian for around sort of 14 15 years um very early on and it didn't do my health very good let's say and then i went on to many different kinds of diets um, I was eventually led to what you might call the ancestral movement or the paleolithic kind of diet. Um, and I found that things were never as good as they could be, let's say. Um, although I improved my health massively, things would still fluctuate. And I found that when I went on a primarily animal-based diet, um, and this was kind of unknowingly. This was before I knew of the whole sort of carnival approach. Uh, I just uh, intuitively kind of went towards animal foods. And I found that whenever I consumed more animal foods and less plants, that that, was, that would make me feel good. Yeah. And so having some training in nutrition, it was kind of difficult because what I was doing and what I was experiencing in myself was actually the opposite of what I had been taught. Um, and you know, if you look at conventional nutritional training, even like I didn't go to conventional university to study nutrition. I went to like an alternative institution, um, which is meant to be more holistic, meant to be more naturopathic, but still it was very plant-based. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of what triggered my interest in, in learning about plant physiology, learning about the various ways that, um, that plants can actually be problematic for the human body. And then, of course, looking at all of the thousands of anecdotes, thousands by now, and it's getting more by the day. Um, yeah, it, I just find it very interesting. Ultimately, I just want to learn learn as much as I can so that I can help the people that I work with, you know? Yeah, I mean, as do we all. I mean, I think it's, we're all still learning in this field. And, you know, I, and I didn't, I had no idea that you were on a, uh, you know, a carnivorous type diet. So that's kind of cool because I'm obviously I'm fully supportive of that. But what, so you, I mean, because you're not, you don't look like an old guy. I mean, you don't look like, I mean, you been on, you were on a vegetarian for 14 years. How old were you when you started a vegetarian style diet or a vegan style diet? or plant-based diet, or whatever you want to call it, and what compelled you to do that at that young of an age? I was four years old. Four um, years old? Yeah, I was four years old, and that was wow. up until I was 18. Okay. Um, question as to why, I don't know if I can answer that question. Well, I then mean, your parents would have dictated that if you're four, obviously. My mum's my a vegetarian. My dad's not. Uh, I vaguely remember that my parents used to try to get me to eat meat, 
I had quite a close relationship with my mum, and I think I modelled my behaviour off of my mum, and I saw that she didn't eat meat, so I think that that probably filtered through into the way that I was behaving. But I also think that, um, like for many people, there was some emotional kind of aspect to that as well, some undealt with trauma or something, which essentially manifested as um, this feeling of being innately wrong for inflicting pain and suffering on animals you know the typical kind of vegan argument um and and i did i did feel that so i can fully empathize with people who you know who do come at it from the ethical standpoint or what they think is the ethical standpoint when you look into it a little bit more deeply and you start really educating yourself on the circle of life um it you know things things changed so i i was introduced to um it was a book by Lierre Keith. Uh, it's called The Vegetarian Myth. And I read that when I was 18 and everything just kind of switched around completely. Um, and it was difficult to start eating animal products, but eventually I, um, yeah, I did it. I managed it. And now I'm mostly animal based, I would say. Yeah. Elliot, can I ask you real quick? Because one thing I've been just kind of like teasing in my own mind is this idea that like some folks who are on like a vegetarian or vegan diet for their whole life or pretty close to their whole life. Uh, the idea I was teasing is, well, maybe that when they grew up with that, that allows them to do a better job of kind of handling a diet that's set up like that. But that's clearly not the experience you had as if that were the case for you, you would have, you know, you'd probably still be a vegetarian. Do you see a lot of other folks like that who are like lifelong vegans, vegetarians or anything like that? And then they, they come to you and are like a, I need to make a change and skew them more towards animal based. To be honest, I don't get many people who are vegetarian or vegan who come to me mainly because if they look at a lot of my content on my website, they'll see that I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't advocate that kind of eating pattern. Um, I can't say I've, any, I've ever seen anyone who has been vegetarian for such a long time. Generally it's something that they do in adulthood. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I know of anyone who has been on a vegetarian diet since they were a child. If you look at the statistics, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with, I mean, there was one study which showed up to 84 or 85% of vegetarians and vegans eventually go back to eating meat um, for whatever reason. Um, so I, I don't know. I tend to think that the long-term vegans and the very long-term vegetarians I tend to think they're anomalies, you know. Uh, Elliot, I mean, uh, just a couple things. So, I mean, you know, that study we often quote, the 84%, you know, you know, it, it really wasn't a peer-reviewed study. So I, I want to be just sort of candid about that. But, I mean, it's not, we do see a high attrition rate among the vegan and vegetarian populations, and I think health is the number one reason for that. But, you know, as a kid, who, you know, for, you know, most of your childhood grew up in this thing. Do you felt, feel that that was in any way detrimental to your health? And what are your thoughts about this sort of kind of pressure that we're seeing even on little kids? I mean, we see little kids now being almost brainwashed into adopting a plant-based diet, you know, by these, you know, people that are activists and then even some of this legislation that may be driving people to eating meatless days and meatless Mondays and meat out of the school cafeterias. What are your thoughts in general about what it does to, to, to the health of a child? I know that the, uh, there are a number of organizations that say that a vegan diet is compatible with 
all stages of life. There are, there are organizations that vehemently disagree with that. I'll point to the Dietetics Association of both Switzerland and Germany. Um, what are your thoughts having experienced that as, a, as an actual person has done this as a, for, for, his, for his childhood? Um, in response to the, to the first aspect of the first question um, about my own experience, I do feel like it, it affected me detrimentally. Yeah, I do. And it's difficult to pinpoint exactly how that might have occurred because I don't know where I would be or how well my body would kind of function if I had eaten a more traditional diet. Um, I know what I do know is that uh, as per my genetics, when you look at other members of my family, um, they are taller than I am. I'm only about five foot nine. Um, my, my, my family, I can only look at the rest of my family, but generally they have quite good jaw structure and, um, straight teeth. Whereas I, um, my teeth aren't particularly straight They're they're quite crooked. And I'm like, I assume that's looking at the work of Dr. Weston A. Price. I assume that the jaw structure and the teeth may be due to some form of malnutrition as a child. Um, I was, I mean, my growing up with regard to emotional and psychological health. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I was an emotionally healthy child. Uh, in terms of regulating my emotions, I was very quick off the mark. And I, it was actually quite amazing because when I, you know, within the first sort of three or four months of actually starting to eat animal products again, I felt like I was actually somewhat in control of my emotions. Whereas before, um, I was a bit like a loose cannon, so to speak, um, with the brain fog, with kind of anxiety as a child. Um, but also, I think being an underachiever as well, I never felt like I could um, particularly focus in school. I was never interested in learning. It was only when I started eating animal products that I developed uh, or I found out that I really like to read books, you know. <laughs> so I, I can't really, I can't really uh, qualify exactly what the what the issues were but i can say that i think that it probably did have a detrimental effect yeah and with regard to the the recommendations that are coming out um more and more today that children can basically be brought up on a vegan or vegetarian diet um i think it's a big experiment and I don't know of any um, traditional culture or large population of people that have ever really done that. I mean, if you look at India, um, I, I spent quite a lot of time in India, actually. And India, yeah, there are lots of vegetarians. Um, but the health of the Indi Indians is not great. And whilst they are predominantly vegetarian, many of them do still have many animal products. So they have dairy, they have, they might have eggs, they have uh, different types of cheeses and things. So in terms of actual veganism, um, I, I don't know of any, any group of people, large group of people that have sustained on a diet completely free of animal products. Um, so ultimately, again, I'll reiterate, I think it's an experiment and I think it's a, an extraordinarily dangerous one at that. Um, now, for those who are genetically uh, gifted, let's say, they might be able to live a long and health, healthy life on a vegan diet. I don't dismiss that. 
and because there there do seem to be people like that we can't deny that but ultimately I think it's like a genetic lottery, so to speak. And I think there's probably loads of other factors involved there. But for many people, I mean, if you look at something like vitamin A, the conversion of the carotenoids to actual usable retinol is is really difficult to do. And then if you've got a certain type of genetics, then it's almost impossible to do. So you're looking at... Pro- the 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 likelihood of deficiency is just increased to such an extent on something like a vegan diet along with all the plant toxins and the anti-nutrients and whatnot it's a recipe for disaster in my opinion um yeah let me uh when you were a kid were you taking supplements was that was that part of your 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 routine as a kid no i did eat lots of dairy though i ate lots of dairy and um I guess the food that I was eating was somewhat fortified as well, but I was never like a diehard vegan. I, you know, I ate lots of cheese. I ate eggs. I ate, uh, drank milk, cream and whatnot. I don't know. I don't know if I'd have gotten on as well if I hadn't have eaten dairy products personally. Yeah, yeah possibly. So of course the, uh, the sort of skeptics, vegans, vegetarian vegans out there would say, well, you were eating eggs and, and dairy. That's why your health wasn't good. You know, that's just what we often hear. That's, you know, that's, their kind of logic there. Um, Let's talk about, um, let's go into some of these because you talked about some anti-nutrients and I know uh, oxalates seem to be something that you have a lot of knowledge, but I mean, we can talk about any of them, any of them that you feel like talking about, but let's, let's begin with oxalates and talk about what are oxalates and why are they problematic for people and why do some people don't seem to have problems with them and some people do? Do we know that? It's a really good question. Um, yeah, oxalates, I would say, of all of the, the types of um, components of plants, I would say it, oxalates are the most interesting for me um, because it, there's, there's a few reasons for that. Oxalates are particularly insidious um, because if you look at many of the what we call kind of plant toxins, you know, you've got things which can have somewhat of a beneficial effect in certain contexts, such as if you look at sulforaphane, there are arguments to say, I don't know whether this is true or not, but there are arguments that it upregulates nerf 2 inside the cell. There are arguments that it can have some beneficial effects, at least for some people um, and in a certain context. And if you look at the salicylates and the phenols and all of the, um, uh, the phytonutrients, and while they can be kind of toxic in certain circumstances, they might actually have a beneficial effect uh, in other circumstances. Whereas if you look at oxalate, oxalate is essentially a metabolic byproduct of plants, but we also produce it in small amounts in, in human physiology. Thing with oxalate is there's no use for oxalate or there's no known use. And that's um, as much as I can tell at the moment. And from what I'm, you know, a lot of the, the, in, the interface between the research on oxalate and the, the general public has really been, uh, has really been the, the information on oxalate has been brought to the public really by Susan Owens. She's a, a researcher in, in autism, but she also kind of specializes in oxalates. She knows she's a genius on, on the topic. Um, but essentially she's under the, the same impression that there is no known 
use for oxalate in the human body, you really just need to get rid of it. And so it's toxic on multiple different fronts. It's, its structure is essentially, you can think of it like a crystal. Um, it, it can, in plants, you have something called oxalic acid. And what it does is it binds with certain minerals. So you have like the soluble minerals like uh, sodium and potassium oxalate. And you also have, it binds with calcium and it forms like these shards or really hard crystals. And that's uh, calcium oxalate. And essentially, um, this is one of the ways, or it's theorized at least, this is one of the ways that plants protect themselves against um, animals that are trying to eat them. So they can't run away, but what they can do is they can produce this kind of really toxic compound. Um, what happens is, is when an animal or when a human consumes oxalate, um, because of its like really sharp and spiky structure, it can essentially become lodged in the tissue. So it can become lodged and actually cause physical stress. It causes like mechanical damage to um, the cells, to the membranes, to, to all of these kinds of things. And <clears throat> this can be a really big problem when, when there's too much of it. So the thing with oxalate is that it's not always a problem for every single different person it, it can be a problem in certain contexts and i think it can be a problem in really high amounts um so essentially what happens is, is say you eat a food which is really high in oxalates such as i mean some of the main foods are spinach or um almonds or amaranth or some other kind of green leafy vegetable essentially what what happens is you will break it down in the stomach and in in the intestine and you have certain gut bacteria um and there's many different species that are supposed to um to basically to perform this function but what the gut bacteria do is they kind of bind with the oxalate and they break it down and so for the people with this gut bacteria, that's okay. They can eat high oxalate diets like uh, Dr. Dietrich Klingar has spoken about. Um, I can't remember the exact population, but it's one of, I think it's in the South Pacific Islands or something where they eat a diet mostly um, composed of sweet potato. Yeah. And they didn't seem to have any problems and sweet potato is, is really high in this compound. So clearly it's not a problem for everyone. But the problem is, is that when you don't have this kind of bacteria for whatever reason, and this could be because of certain antibiotics, such as, I mean, the most well-known are the fluoroquinolones um, or nitrofurantoin or something like that. When you've decimated the, the microbiome in some way, you've altered it then what can happen is, is you don't have this protective factor. And so you're not breaking it down. And that means you can actually absorb it into the body. <clears throat> now, there's a couple of other things which predispose one to actually absorbing too much. One of those is um, fat maldigestion. So if they are, say, if they've got some kind of biliary stasis or um, pancreatic insufficiency, they're not producing the enzymes to basically emulsify the fat. So you've got these free fatty acids coming into the gut. And what they do is they bind with calcium and calcium is ordinarily protective because that binds with oxalate, if that makes sense. So dietary calcium, it binds with the oxalate in the gut and stops it from being absorbed. But when you have free fatty acids, you're essentially 
binding up all the free calcium. So there's not as much to protect against the oxalate. So that's another factor, but there's also leaky gut. So just, um, you know, when, when the gut starts to open up like that, this allows oxalate crystals getting, get into the blood more than usual. I think this is more pertinent today than probably ever in our history, because not only are we coming into contact with all kinds of chemicals, all kinds of, you know, man-made pollutants, which have that effect. Also, we've got the EMF, which has been implicated in that as well. And there's all these other kind of factors. So I think that people as a whole are probably um, more susceptible to the damaging effects of these plant oxalates. Anyway, so, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, you know, we, we, we've spoken with uh, a number of people regarding leaky gut and a lot of our dietary constituents, you know, predispose us for that, you know, maybe whether it's seed oils or, or certain sweeteners and, you know, medications and whatnot that we, we all seem to be exposed to in far greater quantities than we used to. And so it makes sense that now we're seeing people that are, that are seeing damage from, you know, possibly oxalates getting in through past, the, you know, the, the, the gut membrane, you know. Um, the, um, you know, interesting thing is that, uh, you know, I find that um, a lot of these sort of ancestral diets are high in oxalates, which is, you know, we, we, we sort of, you know, don't realize that. I mean, when I was doing when I was on a ketogenic diet or a paleo thing, I was eating tons and tons and tons of spinach thinking it was great for me. And, you know, perhaps it wasn't as, as, as good as I thought it was. But, um, you know, I think the point about, you know, the fact that uh, the leaky gut predisposed us is interesting and also some of the genetic variations that we're seeing. Because, I, you know, like I said, there's certainly people that if they take in enough oxalate, I mean, they'll, 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 they'll shut their kidneys down. I mean, the kid, certainly, as we know, the most common form of kidney stones are oxalate stones, which is something most people aren't aware of, but you don't get that. You get that from eating basically eating oxalates. Yeah. Um, on the point about the ketogenic diet, I really think this is one of the most important things that barely anyone is talking about. You spoke about Sally Norton. She's done a fantastic job at educating people about this. But if you look at a ketogenic cookbook, it is amazing the amount of oxalates. I mean, some of them are recommending green smoothies. And so the average intake of oxalates um, in the American population from the data that I've seen is around um, 150 milligrams per day. Okay. In a green smoothie, you can have over 800 milligrams in one smoothie. Okay. And this is, this is important because I was talking about how you have certain bacteria which can be protective but the problem is the research actually, there's one study which showed that when you feed that bacteria too much, you actually inhibit it. You kill that bacteria off. So it can only deal with a certain limit. And these, these smoothies or even just a, a ketogenic diet, high in spinach, kale, um, co cocoa powder, you know, um, all of these ingredients which really become staple, it's potentially a really big problem. And that I think many people who go on these kinds of diets are attributing the, say they come down with kidney stones or they start getting, uh, some of the symptoms I'll talk about in a minute, they'll attribute that to a ketogenic diet. They'll attribute that to the increase in animal products and animal fat. When in fact, I think, 
usually it's because paleo and keto diets actually the the main staples are just so high in oxalate compared to the average dietary constituents especially i mean in the gaps diet which is used for for treatment of autism and other sort of psychiatric conditions um you the recommendation is to replace grains so that's good they replace grains but they replace it with almond flour and that stuff is just sky high but you're saying about kidney stones and um, so if you look at like the clinical research most of it is on kidney related pathologies so it has to do with um kidney stones nephritis you know all all of these things which related to the um to the kidneys but actually when we look at oxalate toxicity it, it spans far beyond the kidneys in fact what they've found is that oxalates can deposit in practically any organ so you're talking about the thyroid gland the liver the brain the eyeball the i mean i don't know if there's an any organ where oxalate hasn't been found to deposit and the interesting thing is i don't think any of the researchers know why some people will develop kidney stones yet other people will de develop arthritis there's something called oxalated uh, oxalate-induced arthropathy, which is basically um, when oxalate crystals, as I said, that they're like really sharp shards. When they get deposited in the synovial membrane, it causes like a, a symmetric arthritis, yeah? And people attribute this to all kinds of other causes, but they actually find that when they go on a, a low oxalate diet, things really improve. Um, so this is fascinating, but essentially it can get into every nook and cranny and cause problems because this is one of the reasons why oxalate fascinates me so much because it, it, it's operating on multiple different fronts. So it's like a mechanical stressor. And if you cause a mechanical stress to any tissue, you, you're going to deplete things like B6, glutathione, all of these things. You can induce chronic inflammation just by doing that. But when you look at it actually gets into the cell and it, it has like a biochemical biochemical effect as well so it can disrupt certain enzymes involved in energy metabolism like you've got um pyruvate carboxylase and this is how you're you know you're replenishing oxaloacetate and citric acid cycle it basically this is a biotin dependent enzyme and what it's doing is it's like dislodging biotin and it's actually inserting itself into the place of biotin and this happens on multiple different enzymes like involved in in the energy system and so it can completely throw off the whole krebs cycle and all of this stuff um just just on a biochemical level but at the same time when it gets um lodged into something like the mitochondria you know, I'm sure, um, I think I was reading one paper that was saying that it basically like stuck onto cytochrome C oxidase and it disrupted that function. It can, it can basically dysregulate almost every aspect of cellular physiology. Um, and this is, this is, I think, something quite common, but it's not typically in the medical research if someone doesn't have kidney stones then they're not investigated for oxalates and so a lot of the information that we know 
about what can happen to someone when they do have too many is actually um, in the in the genetic condition. are called hyperoxaluria in enzymes um, involved in something called the glyoxalate pathway which is basically um, the the way that the body produces its own oxalate and ordinarily this pathway is really quite minor so what that means is that you're only ever producing a very very small amount you shouldn't be producing much and when you're producing a small amount that your body can deal with that but in certain genetic variations um, and there's a couple of types of this. Some of the enzymes involved in that pathway can actually become inhibited. And so you get a diversion of all of these different um, biochemical intermediates, these endogenous intermediates. They get shunted towards oxalate synthesis. And with these people, um, that's where a lot of this data is actually coming from is that actually they are so overburdened with oxalate that it's, 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 it's getting everywhere essentially and it can cause so many different problems. But I think this is a lot more common than people actually think. Yeah, Elliot, this has been some awesome information so far. And I think uh, like the first time this kind of topic came up on our podcast was back on, I believe it was episode seven. We had Owen Franks come on, who's a professional rugby player in New Zealand. And we, we were on the topic of kind of the ketogenic diet and how he kind of evolved that into a uh, uh, more of a carnivorous approach for himself personally. And one thing he mentioned that kind of resonated with me was that when he first started the ketogenic diet, it wasn't a, it was this weird, like kind of situation where he felt like, well, if I take out the carbohydrates, if I take out the pasta, the potatoes, the breads, certainly I have to replace them with something. So the easy thing was this vehicle for fats and proteins, like leafy vegetables, broccoli, and that sort of thing. So it's like making up for the space that's missing from the, the previous diet. And, uh, he said he quickly got abandoned that just because of like digestive issues, I believe. But, um, uh, that rang true for me because that was kind of my experience too when I first started the ketogenic diet um, almost seven years ago or a little over seven years ago. And it was like, you know, it was for me as an athlete, it was a no brainer because if I ate a ton of vegetables one day and uh, then I had to go to the bathroom three times just to get out the door to go for a run, that was pretty clear to me that that wasn't the, mo the way to go. So, you know, I curtailed the amount of the stuff like that and you get kind of like troubleshoot on the fly, but I don't think a lot of people do that. I think a lot of people they'll say like, oh, well, I'm going to the bathroom a bunch of times. That must be a good thing. And some of it, I think we just have a poorly understood uh, definition of what good digestion actually is. Yeah, indeed. Um, what, what's also very interesting is that um, I think many of the people who who do this kind of dietary template, um, they find that, that they come across the same issues. It's, it's really quite common, but they attribute it to, to, to the wrong things. They think it's the animal products. They think it's the meat. They think it's the, the fat. Um, but when you really dig into the effects of these, of these toxins, essentially, um, many of the the symptoms can actually be attributed to these things and if you do some testing there are some ways they're not perfect but there are some ways to actually test oxalate um 
you find that usually the people who experience these symptoms actually have really high urinary oxalic acid. So <laughs> the problem is as well, is that if you've gone a very long time eating a high oxalate diet, your body is going to have a difficult time getting rid of that. Uh, there's a very good chance that if it's because what happens is, is when you eat a lot of it, the blood level um, of oxalate increases and your kidneys can only deal with so much at any one given time. And when it starts to deposit in a, in a tissue, it can be in the joint, it can be in the muscles, can be in um, any of the organs. It's kind of stored there, stored there as calcium oxalate crystals. And so someone um, someone can have loads of oxalate stored in their body and not necessarily have any symptoms. But what happens is, is that when, and I, I think that this might actually be, or I think that this might contribute at least into what is called the adaptation phase of the carnival diet what happens is is that when blood levels of oxalate decrease so when someone starts to reduce oxalate in their diet the body will actually trigger something called dumping and dumping means the body's way of basically excreting all of this stuff because it's not metabolized it's not detoxified there's no specific detoxification system for it it's more like basically just chucking it out and it can come out in many different ways it can come out in the skin it can come out in the eyes in the urine through the gut there's many different dumping type symptoms but it's it's interesting because on the carnival groups and and looking at all of the anecdotes the the typical adaptation symptoms they don't make sense to me or they didn't make sense to me before because many of the people who go carnival like you just said zach like um, your your friend, they're usually ketogenic first. So they're usually fat adapted. They've got no problem burning fat. So my question is, why is it, what, why do they experience or do some people experience such horrible symptoms when they're already fat adapted? Like when I was on a standard diet and then I started you know, uh, on a, a carbohydrate or glucose based, based metabolism, switching over to ketogenic was quite difficult, but that's kind of understandable because your body's been so used to burning glucose for fuel that when you change to fat, it, it's understandably potentially going to take a while to adapt. But if you've been on a ketogenic diet for four or five years, why would it be difficult to cut out the plants? But what I see is, and I tell you what, since I've been doing this, these videos and these articles on oxalate, more and more people have been getting in contact and saying that, okay, they're on a ketogenic diet, a really high oxalate diet. They changed to carnivore and then all of a sudden they started experiencing all of these terrible symptoms, skin rashes, fatigue, brain fog, frequent urination, um, all of these kinds of things. And so it made me think, okay, you know, what is this? And actually, many of the symptoms that people report when they go onto the carnival diet are very similar to the symptoms that people who reduce oxalate actually report as well. And so when you completely cut out oxalate of the diet, you initiate this dumping and it can be really severe for certain people depending on how much they've got. And so what you're doing is you're essentially 
like getting rid of these crystals in all manner of ways and it could manifest as like a skin rash so or people who you're probably familiar with the idea of a keto rash yeah keto mm-hmm. rash so when people get keto rash when they go from their say a vegan diet and then go on to ketogenic and they get this weird rash it's almost identical to an oxalate related rash um many people experience things like um or they might develop kidney stones all of a sudden and attribute it to the high protein but actually it could very well be related to the oxalate dumping you know and so for these individuals jumping onto a carnival diet from from being on a really high oxalate diet and jumping onto a carnival diet immediately might not be the best idea because when when you all of a sudden cut out all of the oxalates immediately it can cause some really rapid symptoms so the general recommendation is to do it slowly you know now i didn't personally do that I didn't get any major symptoms when I changed to carnivore, but there are some people who I'm working with at the moment who are really going through a time of it. And what we found is that actually using the oxalate, like providing some temporary support in terms of certain supplements can act, is actually really helping. So I'm not like a massive fan of supplements anyway. Ideally you can, you can get it through the diet, but what, what I've been finding is working with people transitioning to carnivore, we find out that they've got really bad oxalate problems either through testing or through symptoms. Um, Something like magnesium citrate works wonders. Like you wouldn't believe. I have one guy who, um, who had, he was diagnosed with interstitial cystitis and went through the whole medical system no no ideas and so we got him onto a carnivorous based approach and his symptoms disappeared 95 percent. he he said that everything was 95 percent better within like three or four days this guy was on a really high oxalate diet with green juices and all stuff all that stuff beforehand and so we got him onto this approach and it improved massively but then he started experiencing like cyclical improvements cyclical um return of his symptoms like similar to how oxalate dumping can happen it can it can be a cyclical process giving him something like magnesium citrate he says that it helps to such a degree um and the reason for this is i mean in the oxalate related forums citrate any form of citrate be it calcium citrate or magnesium citrate can actually help because they dissolve the oxalate crystals. So it can really help to reduce the symptoms. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Unamate by a brand named Unicity. This sponsor is unique. It has a personal story behind it. In 2015, I started using the tea Yerba Mate I liked it for its calm sense of alertness that it provided versus kind of the more jittery alertness that you could get from uh, more traditional caffeine sources. I even used it in 2015 at the end of the year in route to breaking the 100-mile American record at the Desert Solstice Track Invitational. The only hiccup that I have had with using Yerba Mate in training and racing has kind of been a logistical hiccup. It 
I usually had to either kind of pre-make the yerba mate as like a hot tea or buy it in a can, which a lot of times the cans you would find had been sweetened with sugar and other things. Uh, so I was always kind of on the lookout of trying to maybe make that process a little more efficient. So after interviewing Dr. Ben Bickman for episode 13 of HPO, he had discovered that I was a fan of yerba mate in training and races. And uh, he's actually been studying some of the effects of yerba mate and connected me with a product called Unamate, which makes kind of an instant single serving package of the tea. With, with these single serving packs, I, I can easily kind of prepare on the fly even during a race or during a training run without having to go through all the kind of logistic steps of preparing the tea ahead of time or bringing a can full of something along with me. And I actually even used it at the Tunnel Hill 100 mile this last fall where I ran the, the fastest recorded 100 mile or on a trail as well as the fastest 100 mile or outright during the year for 2018. Um, so needless to say, I'm behind the product. If you'd like to try it out, please head over to unicity.com forward slash HPO. That's U-N-I-C-I-T-Y dot com forward slash HPO to get $3 off a 7-pack or $10 off a 30-pack of Unamate. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Elliot, you know, just there's a couple comments I want to make. I mean, you know, one, it's, it's very fascinating. And I mean, it's, I think there are a number of things in addition to oxalates that we can talk about, you know, there are that, that the body, you know, will accumulate uh, in, in its tissues, you know, some of them being these, these uh, omega-6 oxidized fats that we see similar that takes a long time for it to sort of leach out of the system. And that's why people that have been on a carnivore diet for even up to several years will continue to report improvements as these things slowly work their way out of the body. And I'm wondering, you know, again, it's going to depend on the severity and the load, but what's the time frame for, you know, finally getting these oxalate deposits out of the body takes, I would imagine it's months to years potentially would be my guess, you know, based on what I know about calcium metabolism. But the other thing that I think is interesting is that, um, or, my understanding is you can't do much to mitigate oxalates through preparation. I mean, I don't think, I think cooking doesn't really change that. Um, are there th you, you'd mentioned that maybe ingestion, co-ingestion with calcium and, and a lot of these leafy green vegetables, as we know, do have calcium in them. And so some of that may be mitigated. So can you talk about, you know, for people that are consuming these oxalate rich foods, what they can do to mitigate some of that effect. And then, you know, you know, I, I mean, I think we should talk a little bit more about what foods are oxalates are contained in what foods. I know you mentioned leafy greens and almonds, but they're 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 in quite a few things, a lot more things than we think they are. Um, and then the other thing, and I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you here. Hopefully, you remember it all. But and then the other thing I think is very interesting that you brought up the point that we, when I think of as a physician, and most physicians will think of oxalates, will think of kidney stones, but it's really important to realize that some of these subtle symptoms, whether it's joint pain, whether it's digestive problems might be for many people also oxalate related. And I think most people don't realize that. And I'm glad you pointed that out, but kind of, if you can remember any of the questions I just asked you, comment on them. Um, what was the first one? No, like, I, don't even, no I think we talked about uh, mitigation and, you know, right, you know yeah, what you can yeah. co-ingest potentially. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you're, you're right in that cooking what you can do is you can boil food. Um, 
it gets rid of it to some extent into the water if you're going to discard the water but there's no amount of baking or frying or anything like that you see oxalate is not degradable by heat it's not something that you can just cook up and you know neutralize in that way it's really about avoiding it um not eating too much of it in one go especially if you're sent if if you're one of the people who um who you think might have a problem with oxalates it's best to avoid it like to stay away from it there are some things that you can do to mitigate that so as i've said if there's like an existing oxalate problem then citrate is is going to be very helpful in that regard but in terms of the food that you're eating calcium i would generally recommend taking some eggshell calcium before a meal or any other form of calcium if someone is eating dairy products they can tolerate that then eat dairy before the meal ideally at the start of it um because what that is going to do is that it's really going to bind with a lot of the calcium in the gut it's not going to be absorbed now with regard to the food um again really most plants uh, most plants contain some levels of oxalate it's just you're looking at the degree of of how much it contains there's no plants which are free of oxalate um animal products are generally the safest they're very low if you know some don't contain any dairy products as well in terms of plants um the major the major plants that really contain um the oxalates are the green leafy vegetables you have things like spinach swiss chard kale you also have um some of the root vegetables which are really high particularly sweet potato um beetroot that's crazily high you have potatoes like ordinary potatoes many of the gluten-free grains as well like buckwheat and amaranth but actually even the gluten containing grains such as wheat they contain a contain a lot um the berries so things like blueberries um these are very high rhubarb um the tea various types of tea um some of you'll probably be happy to hear that coffee is low um there are i just want to make it clear that there's lots of different different lists online and some have conflicting um answers i don't i don't take any notice of any of those lists i go directly to susan owens uh, facebook group it's called trying low oxalates and they've actually independently tested um so many most different foods basically and they've got a whole database on that so that's where we, where i would trust the information coming from um, and they've shown that coffee is low but many of the teas and the herbal teas are extraordinarily high and also things which we're told that we should we should be getting much more of such as the spices like turmeric and like cinnamon you know like people who who were putting turmeric in every single meal tablespoons worth of cinnamon in their drinks and stuff i don't think that this is this is healthy i don't think that this is natural and um, i don't think it's healthy for a lot of people as well because it can cause so many problems with um with this but then also nuts so really any kind of nuts i think macadamia nuts are the most benign and almonds and uh, peanuts are, are quite high but generally someone has an issue with nuts 
or if someone has an issue with oxalates, whether it is external or whether it's endogenous, which I haven't spoken spoken about. But um, if if they have got an issue with that, then nuts are going to be off the table because they are potentially going to really exacerbate things. Now, what was the other question? <laughs> I was wondering, you know, like I said, we classically think about you know, kidney stones, but I mean, what, what, what would someone who might be, what kind of symptoms might the average person have that has an oxalate sensitivity or an oxalate toxicity reaction? What would they might expect to think experience that they might not normally attribute it to oxalates? Yeah. Okay. So that's a really good question. I just want to make it clear that as per my understanding of, of the way that oxalate is, is dealt with. I wouldn't say that there's such a thing as oxalate sensitivity. It's, I would say it's more of a toxicity because when you look at the effect that oxalate actually has on the cells and on the body, it doesn't seem that there's people who are more sensitive. It just means whether the, uh, how to put this, whether they are susceptible, let's say. So, um, this is interesting because oxalate problems seem to be able to manifest as practically any different system or any different symptom. There are some really common ones, however, and these are generally, I mean, kidney stones is the main one. Um, but if anyone has chronic urinary tract infections, um, so they might have bladder irritation they might have blood in the urine they might get the urine sent off to a lab and cultured and actually find that there's no infection but they have all of the symptoms this is because oxalate crystals can actually deposit in the bladder when they deposit in the bladder they actually cause irritation they cause inflammation when there's no infection or if they've got a chronic urinary tract infection and it keeps coming back despite having antibiotics, I would want to be looking at oxalates. The reason for this is, is because essentially what has been shown is that um, E. coli, which is the, the bacteria which is found in the large majority of UTIs, E. coli can actually selectively aggregate in and around the oxalate crystals. So essentially, you've got the oxalate crystal, which is like deposited in the urinary tract. And this bacteria basically lives off that. It's, it's, it's where it can house itself and basically like um, exist. And so you can be treating it with a UTI, but with, a, with an antibiotic. But essentially, if you've got these oxalate crystals lodged here, there and everywhere, that's probably going to be one of the reasons... Um, why this keeps coming back and so people find that when they reduce oxalate issues or when they reduce oxalate in the diet chronic utis and yeast infections as well that's another really common symptom any chronic yeast infections um, these things tend to improve but again some of the the most common ones also is anything related to the joints and the muscles so if there's any kind of joint pain or muscle pain um, usually um, non-radiating, so nothing that can be attributed to anything else, uh, just a, a random pain in the back or in the shoulder or something like that that doesn't tend to improve with massage. Um, this is potentially oxalate-related. Um, oxalate's been 
it's interesting. There's a condition called vulvodynia, which is basically like inflammation and pain of the, the labia um, in a female's uh, genitals. Essentially, this is, um, it's theorized that this may actually be oxalate crystals like piercing the tissue, basically deposited in the labia and actually like uh, shredding and whatnot. And that's what's causing the pain. I mean, when you think about it, it's crazy. It's like a razor blade, like cutting into your arm or something. At, at the microscopic level, this is literally what this what this toxin does. Um, but again, there are so many different conditions and there's more by the day. Unfortunately, it's a very understudied topic, but it has been implicated in autism. So it's... Susan Owens has done a lot of work into this, showing that children who have autism, they often have issues with sulfur metabolism, problems uh, absorbing and actually utilizing sulfate, which is a nutrient. Um, but this often goes hand in hand with oxalate. And this, one of the reasons for this, I believe, is because oxalate can actually cause the body to waste sulfur, waste sulfate into the urine, stop us from being able to use it. Um, but any kind of digestive issue as well, not only does the oxalate cause like a dysbiosis in the gut, potentially going to lodge into the, into the gut, cause a leaky gut kind of thing. Um, but it's been implicated in celiac. It's been implicated in uh, inflammatory bowel diseases. It's been implicated in uh, ulcers. It's been implicated in glaucoma. I mean, the list just goes on. It's, it's really impossible to... Um, to pinpoint any of this, but if there's, I mean, another one that, that usually stands out to me, if someone tells me this when I'm sat down with them, itchy eyes for, for no known reason, if they just get really itchy eyes, it's possibly that that could be oxalate because that's one of the ways that the body actually dumps oxalates can be through the eyeballs. Elliot, just, it's, you know, it's interesting because I'm listening to a lot of these conditions and Many of them, you know, particularly with like the chronic UTIs and obviously vulvodynia and some of the digestive problems, we tend to see that more prevalent in, in, in the female population. And I wonder if that is just a, you know, a predisposition to this or the fact that women tend to eat more oxalates than men. I mean, it seems like women are always the ones that are, you know, constantly chowing down on the salads and leafy green vegetables, whereas men tend not to do so. Do you think there's anything to that or is that just me making some spurious observations? I think, yeah, I think that could be one explanation. I mean, generally on the oxalate groups on Facebook, most of my clientele is, is female. Um, maybe because they're more interested in health, they're more likely to eat salads and really rich oxalate foods. You know, most of the people who go in for a soy latte or an almond latte, they're usually females. I would also be considering the hormonal balance though. Um, because if you, I guess our modern world, women, the, the balance of estrogen and pro progesterone with all of the stuff that we come into contact with, with all of the dietary influences, the omega sixes, the xenoestrogens, all of this stuff, I think it can have a really negative impact on the way that women are able to balance their hormones, particularly man, it seems to manifest more so in women. Um, and so if you look at the effects of, say, xenoestrogens or actually just elevated 
estrogen on on gut permeability um there is some research to show that actually when women um have an imbalance in those in those in those sexual hormones this can actually affect the way that the gut is is able to to gel together so to speak i think that this may have an effect as well but that's i have that's just a a a guess uh it does seem to seem to be that women are more susceptible to this kind of stuff though elliot just I was just going to say a couple of follow-up questions based on some of that stuff you were saying. Like, so we have this like list of uh, kind of offenders more or less. Are there fruits and vegetables you can think of offhand that are like kind of low offenders or ones that have low levels of oxalates that if people want to still include those in their diet, they can consider? Yeah. Um, there's quite a lot off the top of my head um, as a, like a starch. Um, generally the squashes are quite low. Um, so like a butternut squash from, from what I can remember, um, in terms of vegetables, let me think, I mean, it's been such a long time since I looked at this stuff because I generally, I don't eat any vegetables. (laughs) Yeah, I don't eat any and I generally, most of my clients don't either. Um, but there are, I mean, there is a whole database online. Um, and, and people can access that. The group is open. It's called Trying Low Oxalates. And I would really recommend looking at that if someone did want to find out about low oxalate foods. Um, but there are quite a few. I mean, there are, there are quite a lot. I mean, cabbage is quite low. Broccoli is kind of medium. I mean, it, for many people, it's not going to be like the end of the world eating a bit of oxalate. It's just for the people. And I think that people who kind of feel forced to go on a carnival diet or feel forced to go on a ketogenic diet because of their health problems. I think that these people are probably way more susceptible than the average person who hasn't really got any health problems, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, yeah, sorry. I can't think off the top of my head. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah. And that's something that's probably easy enough for a listener to just look up and kind of find if they go to that Facebook group you had mentioned and, I get my, my other question too, was that you had mentioned, if I understood you correctly, that there seems to be some sort of digestive enzyme that can kind of help deal with oxalates. So just trying to kind of play devil's advocate a bit, because I'm thinking like the plant-based community, what their response that would be like, well, you need to start focus on getting those digestive enzymes in your diet and develop this good gut bacteria so that you can handle a larger load of oxalates and then get the other benefits from the vegetables without the negative experience of the oxalates. Is this something that is just way too simplified and we simply don't really know like what enzymes are going to help with that? Or am I misunderstanding this altogether? Yeah. So the enzyme that you're talking about, it would be a lipase. So either, right, anything that helps to digest fat in the intestine. So you've got lipases and you've also got the bile, which is coming in from the liver or the gallbladder. And these things are basically going to help you take dietary fat and, and, and package it up so that it could be absorbed. Okay. Now I would imagine what you're talking about is someone in the, as devil's advocate, they might say, okay, so if your pancreatic lipase is functioning and if your liver is functioning really well, then this is not going to be a problem for you. And 
I think for some people it might not be a problem, but quite frankly, I don't think that anyone can say that with any certainty that it's not going to be a problem. The fact is, is that oxalate foods, which are high in oxalate are typically um, seasonal for one. So they're seasonal. That means that human beings likely didn't have access to them all year round in the quantities that we have access to them all year round. That's at one point. Secondly, those of us who live in the Northern Hemisphere, many of these foods are tropical foods. Many of the foods which people are eating, you know, as part of like a whole foods vegan kind of diet, these foods are not available to people in the Northern Hemisphere from October to March. Yeah, they may not have ever been available. So ultimately, I think that anyone who tries to say that the reason people have got oxalate issues is is because their gut's not functioning properly. They haven't looked into the topic well enough. I, I saying about a study. Essentially, they they were showing that you you can only deal with so much at any one given point because if you if you eat too much of it at once, you're potentially going to kill off those microbes in the gut, which protect you against it. Yeah, so what, what that kind of translates to, can't be sure, but what it seems like is that a high oxalate diet either way is probably going to cause problems. Yeah, that's, that's what I tend to think. Um, again, I'm not familiar with any kind of um, traditional population who's had green smoothies um, you know, on a daily basis with 800 milligrams worth of oxalate. I mean, that is just, it's absolutely shocking. Um, and unfortunately, it's many of the health foods that, we're, that we've been marketed are as health foods that I was trained in nutrition, that this is a health food. Um, but ultimately, it seems to be causing people um, many problems. Elliot, let me just ask, um, so for the people that are, already consuming, you know, a fairly high oxalate level diet or, or want to transition to a, you know, maybe an animal-based diet or a carnivorous style diet, how do you sort of taper them off of oxalates? What is the strategy that you found to be effective uh, in general? And then the other question I would have for you is, obviously you're going against the grain of, of vast majority of nutritionists and dietitians and, and, you know, the healthcare system in general by recommending a plant-based diet, so, I mean, a meat-based diet like, like I am. Are you getting any sort of blowback or, or any sort of sort of anger directed your way or, or, or anything like that? But let's talk about the, the, the tapering down and then that, that other topic. Yeah, okay. So um, there's a couple of ways that this can be done. Generally, Susan Owens and, and that kind of school of thought go with the notion based on experience of thousands of individuals this is the way that they generally do it is to gradually reduce it per week by around a tenth so what you would do is you would say for a couple days you would have a diet diary and you would basically do the calculations based on the amount of oxalate which is in those foods you would work out what your daily amount was let's say you're having 500 milligrams per day which is really high so you would reduce that by 50 milligrams per week and the reason for this is is because 
Now, I haven't personally seen this, but according to Susan Owens, it's basically that if someone drastically reduces oxalate too quickly, some people have actually put themselves in A&E because it activates something like a, a major dumping um, cascade, like uh, causes like a metabolic crisis. You know, they're unable to deal with it because they're dumping so heavily, probably because they've got so many stored. So the general recommendation is to reduce it gradually, um, as I said, by 10% each week until you get to a under, under 50 milligrams. And under 50 milligrams is the technical definition of a low oxalate diet. Now, I personally haven't seen anyone with that much of a problem in terms of triggering a metabolic crisis. I'm sure it happens to some people, but I generally would do it in the space of about two or three weeks. I'm just saying that's the way that I do it. Now, that generally does um, cause dumping symptoms, but you need to make someone aware of that, you know, so you need to tell them like, okay. And, and really for anyone who's listening to this, if they're looking to go on a carnival diet and they've got any of the symptoms or conditions which are associated with high oxalates, they need to be aware that if they're going to jump into a carnival diet, then they are probably going to get exacerbations. And this is cyclical exacerbations of their symptoms it's probably not going to happen immediately. And for some people, what we find is that actually it's perfectly fine for like four or five months. And then all of a sudden they start dumping and it's really strange because they thought they, they thought they were okay. They thought, you know, they adapted to the carnival diet, but then actually all of a sudden all of these old symptoms start coming back and then they happen sort of every two or three weeks. Now, um, yeah, I would I would say that it's important for anyone who's who's gonna go onto an animal based diet. I would say try to do it over the space of maybe a month. Try to to gradually reduce the oxalate, and if they find that they um, they go really low oxalate, and then all of a sudden they get loads of symptoms, one of the ways to actually reduce those is actually to eat some oxalate containing food. No, that sounds crazy, but essentially, if you can just have a bit of oxalate, you push up that, that blood level of oxalate, it stops the body from dumping, and actually symptoms. What I'm trying to say is that more is not always better, or faster is not always better. Sometimes for these people, it can be so painful, it can be so stressful for their body, you know, getting rid of all of these toxins that needs to be done slowly and there's certain things that can help with that as well and it really depends on whether someone is endogenously producing oxalate or whether it's something that's just come from the diet so if it's just come from the diet it's probably going to be a lot less severe but what you have is you have certain physiological conditions uh, one is a vitamin b6 deficiency which can be induced fairly easily through various medications or lifestyle choices. Uh, you have a thiamine, which is a vitamin B1 deficiency. And these two vitamins are fundamental um, cofactors in the glyoxalate pathway, basically the pathway that, where the body is producing its own. And so when you've got a, a B6 deficiency, what happens is, is that um, the one of the intermediates is diverted towards 
oxalate instead of being used to produce glycine. And so ordinarily, you can take the precursor and make glycine from it and make collagen and do detoxification and all this cool stuff. But when you've got B6 deficiency, actually what happens is, is that gets diverted towards oxalate. And likewise, similar thing happens under thiamine deficiency and under oxidative stress when there's loads of protein glycation and all of this stuff. Um, so essentially, in these two conditions, if someone's making their own, then really you want to get to the root cause of why they're making their own. You know, if you might want to run a plasma B6 or an erythrocyte transketolase to measure their B6 and B1 status or look at urinary organic acids, there's a couple of markers on, on those tests, which can give you a good indication as to whether someone is, is endogenously producing. And if someone is, sorry, I know this is lots of information, but it's just come to my head. If, if someone is make if, if they're B6 deficient, then drinking something like bone broth can actually make their symptoms 10 times worse. Yeah. So there are people on those groups who actually say that they can't eat collagen rich tissue and they can't drink bone broth because it gives them joint pain or it gives them some kind of weird, crazy symptoms. And this is because it's been shown that, or in rats at least, I don't think there's any human studies on this, but in rats, if they're B6 deficient, actually giving rats glycine, feeding them glycine, you actually increase uh, endogenous oxalate synthesis. All right. So it's multifaceted and it's fairly nuanced, but there's a couple things to consider. Go slowly. Ideally, get to the root cause. Is it coming from your diet? If it was coming from your diet, then reducing the dietary intake is probably going to help significantly. If it wasn't coming from the diet, if it was actually due to something going wrong inside your body in terms of a deficiency, you need to really look at actually addressing that via a, a proper diet and sometimes some kind of supplementation temporarily is probably going to help. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's no, fascinating. And it just kind of shows you the, the level of sort of knowledge out there that we're still learning. And, you know, just all this stuff is, is something that, you know, I, I keep saying that we have a very sort of very shallow understanding of nutrition. I think there's so much more we need to do. But go to the point about, let me ask you, because you're, you're using a, you know, a carnivorous style or a low oxidate style of diet in your, in your clients. How is that going for them? And then are you getting any pushback from the, from the community at large for, for practicing this sort of heretical type of uh, nutrition? Generally, um, trying to convince people to, I mean, I'll be honest, I do tell them that I think that a carnival diet would help them. And some of them do do that, you know. Other people, you need to work a lot more slowly other people probably never going to get there but you do your best um and generally when people start to see the benefits um that's when when they kind of believe what you're saying do, do you know what i mean like you can tell someone that going on an all-meat diet might help them but most of the time they look at me like i'm crazy um, but actually when they see benefits, it's, you know, I send them all of the information, the podcasts and the 
videos and whatnot, um, they start seeing benefits and then they tell other people. And, and generally in terms of my client base, that's not much of a problem. It just takes a bit of time to, to educate them and, and to kind of dispel some of the myths. Um, I usually say, you know, forget everything that you think you know about nutrition and just kind of follow my advice. Just trust me on this one and see how it goes. And that tends to work quite well. Um, in terms of the, the community as a whole, because of like my profession in the UK, we have, we have dietitians. Okay. We have nutritionists and we have nutritional therapists now as part of the national health service dietitians and nutritionists work in the national health service they are like medical professionals okay so they are bound by certain codes of conduct and if they make any recommendations outside of those kind of codes of conduct or the conventional recommendations they can be reprimanded for that like yourself with your license yep they can you can get all kinds of backlash whereas one of the reasons why i actually decided against going the conventional route and toward the alternative route is because as a nutritional therapist i have a lot more freedom um, in terms of recommendations and actually being able to um, advise people on some crazy stuff that is not part of the conventional um, system but which actually seems to work quite well so I don't really get any problems as of yet touch wood um, maybe in the future but ideally not 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 yet <laughs> yeah you're, you're definitely going to be preaching to the choir with our listeners in terms of uh, you know not wanting to buy into the conventional nutritional <laughs> advice so you won't get any pushback from them for the most part I don't think um, but that was actually one thing I was going to ask you being kind of from like the UK area in, you know, I, I do see a lot of plant-based kind of uh, uh, agenda seeking more or less coming from the UK. Is that, have you seen a lot of upsurge in that? Has that been something that's been like a, a hurdle for you in terms of getting through to people that are asking for help or looking for help? It's quite amazing to see in the past five years, <clears throat> it seems to have just come out of nowhere actually. Um, when I was vegetarian, it was sometimes quite difficult to buy the veggie products, you know, like they have that fake meat, like I used to eat that fake meat, the corn and stuff. But, um, <laughs> but now it's, uh, I mean, there's like a whole aisle, there's a whole aisle just full of all of these fake meat products. And it seems that veganism and especially veg vegetarianism, but also veganism seems to be on the rise. Um, seems to be among among the 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 kind of millennials um the 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 younger generations um yeah it seems that there's a big push especially coming from the uk um i don't know how long how long it will go on for like that it doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon um i'm not sure whether there will be any kind of national national recommendations i think they're trying to bring in the plant-based thing but whether people will accept it or not is another question because in the uk we do like to eat our meat so i'm not i'm not entirely sure but what what i do see is that um 
many people who have turned to veganism are switching back to meat um, eventually because everything stops working. <laughs> they suddenly develop digestive issues and they suddenly develop this. And when these, when the people do change back from veganism and they come to me, then, then I start working with them. You know, generally I don't, I don't really tend to, I guess I can't answer your question very well because I don't, um, I don't have much contact with, with many vegans. I'll be honest. I don't think that they like me. <laughs> well, well, when when it fails on them, business will be booming for you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there there may be uh, some people that might wisely have you know vegan recovery yes, clinics and stuff like that because I think those will be popular in about five years. You know, <laughs> to deal with all these, the, you know, all the damage that's going to occur from all these people trying to adopt a plant based diet. Um, Elliot, what else? Is there anything else you want to touch on? I mean, you know, we, we've taken up a lot of your time. You know, we're happy to discuss some more stuff if you're interested. Uh, if not, you know, just let us know how to get a hold of you and that sort of stuff. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, there's, I think you guys have covered so much on your podcast already, you know. I think you've covered practically every topic. Well, we, we, it's all, you know, the, the thing is, it's always good to keep getting the message out there because it's, it's really a 24 seven job to sort of, you know, sort of mitigate all the dis disinformation that's out there. But, you know, I think the point you brought up about, you know, oxalates being universally just bad for us, you know, maybe there's a small amount of endogenous production, but we don't, we don't have any real use for it. There's a very interesting distinction between some of these other plant compounds that we often hear about, like polyphenols and tannins and, you know, what have you, you know, you know, the list is long. It's as long as we can imagine there's, and probably we've only characterized a small fraction of all the compounds that are in, that are actually in plants that we don't even know that exist yet or, or haven't bothered to, to, to study them. And we certainly haven't studied them in depth. You know, we've looked at, you know, major toxicity or acute, acute toxicity and perhaps cancer uh, potential. But beyond that, we don't really look at, does it cause gut disturbances as a cause, mental health issues. We just don't know that information. But I think the point about the fact that, you know, some of these things might up upregulate uh, certain enzymes, detoxification systems, you know, we, we hear this uh, quote unquote theory of hormesis and being, being espoused as a reason why we should include, you know, some of these quote unquote potentially noxious type compounds in our diet, at least in a low dose. What do you think what do you, what is your response to saying, you know, you need to get some amount of these things in our diet um, for those reasons. And that, and that, you know, my gosh, um, fiber is essential and polyphenols, you know, where, where are you going to get your polyphenols from if you're on an animal based diet? What, what, is, what is your response to that? I know what mine is, but I always like to hear other people's perspective. Well, where do you get your polyphenol? <laughs> I mean, what I would say is I'm not familiar with any research which demonstrates the essentiality of polyphenols. So I'd like to know, I'd like to know why they're essential. And in terms of hormesis, we come into contact with lots of stresses every day, especially in our modern world. And I would say that 
the concept sounds cool. Concept of hormesis sounds cool. I think like everything, it's probably a lot more nuanced and context dependent. So people take a good thing or they take something in a specific context, some specific research, and they say they take it to the extreme. So they think, ah, because curcumin was shown to do this in a Petri dish, that means that we should take five grams of curcumin every day, you know, or they assume that just because the endogenous antioxidant system like Nerf 2 is good in some situations, I believe there's also some evidence to say that actually you wouldn't necessarily want that all of the time. And that I also tend to look at it like, okay, if someone is relatively healthy, if they have good metabolic flexibility, then they can probably derive some kind of benefit from certain things. But I also think that if we're looking at stressors, someone is like seriously sick and their body is under so much stress already, what's to say that this person can even tolerate um, that they need any more stress added to their system? If that, does that make sense? Like you've, you've got all of these stresses. It's like if they're already overburdened, then why do, you want to, why do you want to add more? And how do you know if that is, is going to elicit the same beneficial response as it does in an athlete? <laughs> you know, the two different, you've got people who are sick and, and people who are metabolically healthy, two different things. And I think that even though there's no research to show there's no clinical evidence on the animal-based or carnivorous approach, but who cares? Because you've got thousands of people. It's like the talk that you're giving, Sean, at the um, Boulder Conference. What's it called? The plural of anecdote is data. So you can't ignore the fact that thousands of people are reversing their health conditions and actually regaining their health in the absence of polyphenols, in the absence of fiber, in the absence of all of these things. And so I think people get hung up on research. Certainly they get hung up on, on scientific evidence, but ultimately, I mean, it's only limited in its, in its benefit. I don't think that we need to wait for, for science to, to catch up in terms of, um, in terms of making decisions. If something seems to work, then go ahead and do that. I think the best thing to do is just to try to reduce the, the assumptions that we have about things, you know, do what works. That's, that's some wise words. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I often like to say, you know, if, if we want to, we want to talk about predicting the future, you know, um, I think your, your, your current health is probably the best predictor of your future health. And if what you're doing allows you to be in very good health currently, it's going to likely continue to allow you to do that later. And if it doesn't, if it stops working, obviously change. This isn't some sort of dogma. You know, when we start getting into speculation of what I'm going to die of 25 years from now, I mean, that's almost, it's, it's, it, you might as well just, you know, consult the, the horoscope or the tarot cards. I mean, it becomes a religious discussion. And I, I don't think our current nutritional research can in any way, shape or form, realistically predict that for any particular individual, you know, based on these population derived studies, which is most of what our long term nutritional research is based upon. And so I, I really, I really have a hard time when people bring up quote unquote science, when they look at these types of studies and try to tell me 
the way I'm eating is either good or bad. I, I just don't, I just don't see that there's any way that you can really use that data that's out there, but some people are happy to do that. And I think it's a disservice to, to more people than it helps. Also, well, I think that it seems that the problem is, is compartmentalizing also not taking the whole into consideration. So we're looking at human beings as if we're lab markers or we're looking at human beings as if we're metabolites, like assessing someone's health based on the level of butyrate that their gut bacteria produce. I mean, seriously, but what I, I don't understand, I don't understand the logic in that. It's like, that is one of the really, I would say after looking at all of it, one of the primary arguments that people have in um, to tell to tell us that we need to have fiber in the diet is based on the fact that fiber supposedly produces some fatty acid called butyrate, and that if you don't have that, <laughs> if you don't have that fatty acid being produced, if you don't have butyrate coming from the gut, then it means you're it means you're unhealthy. But how can you look at someone who looks healthy? If you feel healthy, if you function the best, if you function in a good way, then how can anyone tell you that because you don't have butyrate, it it means that you're going to get sick? And like like you've just said, I think the pro, we we are so reductionistic about it. We we try to reduce humans to small mechanical parts and we're not small mechanical um uh we're, we're not we're not just chemicals we're human beings and we need to start looking at how human beings function as a whole not just on a chemical basis you know and on top of that when there's not even enough data to be able to say whatever it's like this idea about the microbiome i'll be honest people come to me with stool tests all the time asking me to interpret them and there's <clears throat> i was taught it doing some functional medicine in that training i was taught you know the interpretation of a stool sample so what you're doing is you're using you're spending a lot of money on a lab which is essentially taking your poo and whilst it can be really beneficial for things like assessing digestive capacity so if there's loads of undigested fat in there or undigested protein that's probably not good but when it's what it's doing is it's giving you a, a rundown of all the different bacterial species i think that's highly problematic because there are people out there people who you know lectures i've been to training whatnot who, who are trying to tell you that essentially if you have this certain you, you need to have this certain population of gut bacteria because this does this and this does this i don't think anyone knows i don't think anyone knows enough about this to make any solid assertions so people will come to me and say oh how do i improve this le level of bacteria in my gut i'm just like what do you want to give them two options what do you want to do like fix a test result to improve some weird name bacteria some microbe or do you want to feel well <laughs> like yeah things I mean, have become a, so confused yeah i mean that's a huge discount we have this binary form, form of thinking that it's either good or bad and it's not contextual based but i mean you know just just to flush out that argument you know more i mean you know if we look at what fiber is digested and broken down by the ferment you know fermented in the gut to 
either butyrate, propionate, or acetate. Well, guess what? Protein fermentation does the same thing. You can get you can get isobutyrate, methylbutyrate from protein, amino acid fermentation in the gut anyway. So it's almost a completely mute point, you know, if you're eating protein, you know, and then the same thing, these short chain fatty acids that supposedly nourish the colonic enterocytes. Well, if you're on a ketogenic style diet or a diet that where ketones are around, which a carnivorous style diet tends to do, the same sort of nutrition, you know, occurs for these colonocytes. And so, again, it's just this crazy and I agree completely with you about this overinterpretation of the relevance of the gut microbacteria. Does it have a role? Certainly it does. Do we even come close to understanding 1% of it? No, not at all. I mean, we don't even know what to do with cholesterol yet. And we've been studying that molecule for over 100 years. We still haven't figured it out. And now we've got a system that is orders of magnitude with you know billions of working parts, different species of bacteria, all that are, that are changed by the minute you know, by everything you do, we're going to, we're going to somehow manage to interpret that system to tell you and I how to be healthy. I think it's, again, I think it's ridiculous when we talk about yeah. this, this stuff about, you know, yeah, you've got to have X amount of butyrate and this, this amount of formicutes and this amount of bacteroides in your, in your, in your gut to be healthy. It's bizarre that we even entertain that stuff, but we watch the populace buy this stuff hook, line and sinker. And what it does, it sells them a lot of probiotics and prebiotics and, and otherwise just absolute garbage in my view anyway i ranted a little bit <laughs> couldn't agree more well it's good to agree hey man let's uh let's wrap this one up because uh i gotta go do i gotta go eat a steak and do some other stuff and i'm sure you know, we've, we've taken enough of your time man hey i'll tell you what um for people out in the uk that, that want to and i'm trying to and i'm going to be doing this over the next you know several months here i'm trying to put together a list of you know you know animal friendly healthcare providers, whether it's physicians, therapists, nutritionists, you know, whatever, people out there that, that, that people can go to. And so I, I hopefully you'll let us put your name in that, in that list for the people that are in the northern UK, because I think, that, you know, the more people like you that, you know, again, I go with the damn results and, and stop trying to treat a lab test or a lab value or, or this or that, you know, go with making people actually healthy. I think that's great. Where do we find you? Let people know where to find you, Elliot. Yeah, so um, I have a website. It's called eonutrition.co.uk, and I write some articles on various things. I, um, I also have a, a YouTube channel, which I started last month, and I'm, I've gotten quite a good response, actually. So I think I'm going to start making some more videos on... Um, on the mechanisms of, of plant toxins and various sort of nutritional science related topics. So that's YouTube EO nutrition. And, uh, and I'm on Facebook every now and again, posting articles here and there. Uh, yeah. So if anyone wants to get in contact or wants any advice or anything, um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll send you the link for that, I guess. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put, yeah, Zach will put it up on the link for us. But yeah, I mean, just just don't show any pictures of animals eating each other because you, you might get your, your sites pulled down. You won't be on Twitter for very much longer. Yeah, we'll definitely link that stuff to the show notes. And my guess is a, a good bunch of our listeners will go check out your YouTube channel because the oxalate conversation has been one that keeps showing up in terms of you got to get an oxalate expert on the show. So uh, for those listening to this podcast, when it does come out, uh, we do have Sally, Dr. Sally Norton scheduled to come up later this month as well. So I think we can probably uh, tie up a lot more questions with the oxalate debate, but uh, 
Elliot, thank you so much for coming on, taking this much time to kind of unpack all this for our listeners. And, uh, um, you know, hopefully uh, everything goes well for you up in the UK. Fantastic. It was a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. Looking forward to meeting you in person someday, hopefully. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.